0: Welcome everyone, you're listening to KUCR here on 88.3 FM, also streaming online at KUCR.org. This is Daniel with the D-Report. Today we'll get an opportunity to speak with Natalie Solaris, recent graduate from UC Riverside, with a master's degree in plant pathology. Today, we'll talk about her research, her experiences as a graduate student, and the different movements to reframe science, community, indigeneity, and authorship over our respective knowledge systems. Natalie, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Hi, yes, Daniel. Uh, my name is Natalie Solares. I am a recent UCR graduate student from. Department of Microbiology and Plant Pathology, mastered in plant pathology, and um, I grew up in the area of Paris, California.
0: Natalie, can you tell us a little bit about your project, your research
1: work? Yeah, so I actually had two research projects. It was pretty, it wasn't too complicated, but kind of was to try to get it done in two and a half years. Um, uh, one project focused more on soil-borne uh, disease management, um, managing southern blight, which is a fungal soil borne disease that lives in the soil. Um, and it's a generalist pathogen that affects many plants. Uh, but my focus was uh, managing it in processing tomatoes. And what I was evaluating was grafting of plants with resistant root as an approach, as a non-chemical approach to manage the disease. Um, I did that in the field out in the Bakersfield area. And I did some greenhouse studies, and eventually that went on to evaluating different types of processing tomato cultivars, about like 20 of them in the greenhouse, and evaluating the levels of tolerance and resistance susceptibility in them. And then I had another project that was completely different in a whole different pathosystem, evaluating another fungal pathogen called the Tritocinerae. Um, botrytis finera is commonly known as gray mold. It's what you see in your berries when, you, when they start to get gray and moldy. That's gray mold <laughs> or in many fruits. Um, but I was interested in how that fungus was affecting the actual raspberry plant. Um, and so I did work out in the Camarillo area in a raspberry farm and two of them. And so botrytis, the way it's more commonly controlled for in terms of like the berry, they use uh fungicides. Um, but I was more interested in learning a little bit more about the biology of the fungus and evaluating whether changing the canopy so like say removing leaves or not removing leaves and removing petioles in the canopy, raspberry canopy would reduce the presence of that disease and depending also on the different methods of removal of those leaves so that it's kind of more of um trying to understand the biology
0: without chemical approaches uh, from what I understand your work is based on this idea of pathogens the things we call maybe infirmities or illness or just bugs that affect uh, the tomatoes or the berries when did this interest uh, develop for you
1: so previously before I came into grad school I worked for a berry company, and my focus in my team—it was an applied research—was on finding alternatives to soil fumigants. And the alternatives to soil fumigants was mainly to control for soil-borne fungal pathogens. Um, and so my boss was a plant pathologist, and he was really into soil health, and that passion just kind of really rubbed off. You know, I. I loved soil before I started working that job but working that job and really seeing what soil can do, how you can remediate soil um, through using organic organic amendments or different uh, crop rotations really does allow you to feed the beneficial micro microorganisms in the soil to th- therefore then control the fungal pathogens there. And so in doing this over time, maybe like two to three years, you can eventually reduce disease. And this is in a non chemical approach. And that was just something I was incredibly amazed. You know, we did field studies and we did greenhouse studies and we showed that you can um, reduce the incidence of stillborn, well, at least the one that we were studying, which is verticillium wilt in the Watsonville Salinas area. And I just really. <laughs> became passionate in in soil health and seeing how soil can be remediated we can care for the soil well it's important to care for the soil but we can also um, help alleviate what it's gone through and so i had more of an environmental science and somewhat entomology background and i didn't know much about fungus or plant pathology and so i wanted to learn more because i was interested in plant health soil health and I thought going into plant pathology would allow me to learn more about how we can care for the plants, Um, but interestingly, and I should have known this, (laughs) um, the field of plant pathology was mainly really created to help the large agriculture industries. Um, Before I started the program, I happened to bump into like a, I think he was Bolivian or Peruvian man And my mom was telling him that I was going to grad school to study plant disease. And he looks perplexed, you know, and he stayed quiet for maybe one or two minutes. And he he said, but humans create the disease. It's not really that natural. And when he said this, (laughs) I was just I really understood what he said. It's like, it's true um large-scale agriculture reduces diversity in the field into one crop one method of producing and uses fungicides which are which are more like band-aids to control pathogens and we reduce the diversity so it reduces the the beneficials that do control for what we call pests um and interestingly one thing that plant pathologists always learn about is the potato Irish famine. Don't, I don't know if you ever heard of it. Um, where in Ireland, a lot of people died because they, their potatoes didn't grow. It got a disease, it was a major problem. And what people don't really talk about is like, well, potatoes aren't even native to Ireland. Potatoes are native to the, the Inca area, the Peruvian area and what did colonizers do they went to peru and took maybe one a couple a couple varieties of those and mainly just planted one variety so that that was a the problem they reduced they reduced the diversity which was incredible in peru there's so many types of potatoes that were created by indigenous peoples but they only reduced it to one and giving them to the irish people to grow and so when you reduce that diversity it just created the perfect storm for disease and And a lot of people died. And so that's kind of like what the field of plant pathology kind of works off of Is that we have to control against these pathogens. There's bacterial virus, fungus. Um, And yeah, I've had my little (laughs) troubles throughout that whole (laughs) process and going through plant pathology program.
0: (laughs) I can imagine because of the ways that well, I can imagine it's difficult to consider the ways that we enter academic spaces when some of us have access to other academic spaces that usually don't mm-hmm. get recognized as academic spaces. And I know I'm being redundant with this word, but I'm trying to figure out how do we express this feeling? Because what I, when I, when I hear you speak about, for example, your research, and then I think about what is it that she's doing, and she's like she's doing research on how these tomatoes berries catch on a fungi maybe you know and Mm -hmm. then the question will be like well okay what's how is that related to maybe a larger conversation of a cultural context on on illness and at one point Mm -hmm. i'm thinking about like my grandmother, my grandmother both of them were always working, you know, having some little plant that they took care of. And, and they cared about health all the time. I think anyone who's ever gardened has the same type of conversation that you are expressing. Like, they care about the, the plant itself. They see a little bit of white residue on the leaves and they start worrying. What is that? Um, if mm-hmm. the fruit or vegetable isn't coming out right or coming out and getting immediately, like, uh, decomposing, getting blotches, you worry But the thing that a lot of us kind of struggle is that we may not have had an opportunity to consider the amount of years that people have been working with the land and with plants Mm -hmm. and their own skill sets as researchers themselves to give Mm -hmm. an academic context of them knowing how to treat certain things. And as I heard you, I think it's interesting to consider the struggles that many of us have as we enter institutions like the universities and then moving on to graduate work and then thinking about bringing in some of the conversations. I'm really um, taken aback by that phrase as well that you shared about that person saying to the effect, but humans create these diseases, because I think that's a lot to take in for many of us, this consideration Mm -hmm. of what we could perceive as nature, you know, fighting my plants. (laughs) And then you're going no. That model of disease is a human construct or a human uh, creation, mm-hmm. even based on the on what you're planting. That may not be something that is good for this area. How did you navigate those spaces, I mean, or did you have to navigate those two types of knowledge systems as you went through uh, your graduate
1: work? Yeah, it was definitely <clears throat> very difficult and to me it was difficult because there's very few people of color in the field and for folks to really understand where i came from my colleagues were primarily white (laughs) and so when i i think i had attempted to talk more about gmo corn with them because somebody was so proud that they were able to convince their old university um in selling gmo corn whatever on their campus and i was like why And I don't think they understood why I was upset (laughs) about it. And maybe it was my fault for not able to really have a conversation about it. I felt that it was more people against me than, than for me present. And I just didn't feel like I would really be listened to. Um, So in a way it has really been more separate than it was a lot more separate. It was more of, what I do outside of the, the field, outside of the, the lab that really, I guess, connected those two worlds for me, that's as far as that went, because it's really difficult. I think that I've gone, I went to a couple conferences and um, people really, plant pathologists really don't find there to be a problem with genetically modified organisms, and I understand why they feel that way, but what happens in scientific spaces where they take out the social aspect that has to do with science. And at the same time, these scientists are, in a way, not really exploiting, but they're using um, really great plant material that our ancestors developed. Um, You know, they grew different types of corns or different types of tomatoes, different kinds of potatoes, that are able to grow in specific areas even if there is disease and those wild relatives what they call them wild relatives that usually have these resistance they use it in order for breeding and yet they don't get recognized the indigenous peoples where this came from don't get recognized or they probably don't get any i don't want to say profit but they don't get any royalties or whatever from that history that traditional peoples native peoples developed
0: as I hear you talk, I am connecting the conversation with some of the other conversations I've had in the past, and one of the ones was this questioning of science. And it sounds awkward to even say questioning of science because I think a lot of us are stuck in, in the present conversation toward critiquing science or putting science in the same type of skeptic analysis as other forms of thought for example what we talk about right now is the debate on global warming and there's people kind of challenging the science that is coming out and just saying no it's just a perspective and there's others but when I say uh, questioning science I think about this idea that says without having to end up sounding like a science denier there is a question that is brought forward which says is there room to question science as an academic endeavor, as a model of analysis. And then we would push it forward and say like, well, be more specific, what kind of science are you talking about? And it might be Mm -hmm. too much of a generalization to call it Western science, because most of us will argue like, what is the West at this point? But we do Mm -hmm. know that, as you mentioned, if you happen to be in a laboratory on campus, the science models you're using are very consistent and they're so consistent mm-hmm. that they become unquestioned yeah. but I find it difficult to even have that talk because what I heard you say right now about this awkward contradiction that for many people uh, in the science field in the laboratory in the laboratory context they might be saying like you're, you're trying to bring in cultural models of of discussion and maybe insight into what we do here, but they don't have a place here. And yet, mm-hmm. when you say, when you point out the history of the work that they're using, for example, let's say you're doing work with corn, and you think mm-hmm. about Del Cintre as like this uh, model of like ancestry of what we pers- uh, we presently call like domesticated corn, those moments of of research now on corn. Are capitalizing on the thousands of generations of people that were systematically being scientists themselves yeah. to get that corn to what it is today and it is kind of it is awkward I, I, I do connect to your statement of like this unrecognized credit um, it sounds it sounds silly maybe for some of us as, as, as that are eavesdropping and thinking like what are they talking about well I think the question is this <sighs> like how can how can you say that cultural models such as decolonial theory for example don't don't have a point of resonance inside the laboratory while you are using a corn that was domesticated in the americas and expresses a history of native people bringing it up to the present point that you're studying and then say i don't want to talk about that you know i think that's the part that a lot of us maybe find it as contradictory but I, don't know, I just wanted to share what, what I heard you and, and the way that resonated because I've had that talk a lot. I, I kind of expressed this awkward contradiction of how many of us have entered, uh, specifically the laboratory context. My early academic journey was in the pre veterinary track. And so I spent countless mm-hmm. hours in, in laboratories and feeling that I was learning a skill set that was universal and right. i think there is definitely a very consistent outcome through those laboratories i don't want to say like you know if we take a certain type of of medical procedure or even a chemical that's been synthesized and produces you know less of a runny nose you know when you're sick we know mm-hmm. that's quantifiable but what i what i am saying mm-hmm. is this awkward saying it's not so tight that I can't bring in this conversation forward, and specifically think about like indigenous people, their right to access sovereignty over the what they've brought forward. You mentioned the, the potato, um, the way that people right now in Peru are trying to say, hey, can we protect the diversity that we have here? Can we use some of the same models of maybe not exactly calling a patent, but we want to claim some sense of protection so you don't take it away from us? And I think right. those are the spaces that a lot of us are interested in because I think there is mm-hmm. room for that and, and a necessity for that.
1: Yeah, I agree. There is a necessity for that. And um, even though it seems like maybe the all this use of traditional uh, crops and plants that ancestral peoples used to grow has been done years ago, it, it's, it's still happening. Um, I had read recently where uh, maybe this is like sometime last the last year. Actually, scientists found a variety of corn from the air, the Mije area of Oaxaca um, that actually produces its own nitrogen, which is the most incredible finding because corn apparently needs a lot of nitrogen, which is why our ancestors used to grow beans with it so that it can contribute that nitrogen to the to the corn. Um, And so scientists are going to begin to start breeding using that corn because it would be amazing to revolutionize the corn industry. And when I read this, I was pretty scared and worried. It's like, did they ask permission to the Mije people, the people who've been growing that traditionally for a long time and been surviving on it? Are they thinking about the impacts of what's going to happen when they include those genetics into the regular large industry corn, large corn industry? Um, it could be detrimental, and I don't know how. I don't know what needs to be done in order to, I guess, empower communities to take back their their plants and their seeds. I mean, it's it's a movement, and it's going on. It's been going on, like see my see my my bias. Um, But I think there needs to be more scientists to help them out, so that the science the west quote, Western scientists that they speak with understand where they're coming from and respect it.
0: I believe it helps to consider the shifts that we are witnessing. So the the whole world for generations has been in, in acts of resistance. And now we are entering a place where maybe uh, the only thing that's happened is that we are giving it much more highlighted credit. But as you mentioned, this thing that people have been working for generations to preserve their knowledge systems. And if we're talking right now specifically about plants, uh, the domestication process requires just that, human intervention. That's, that's kind of like one of the definitions that a lot of us use on, on the phrase of domestication is that when, when you insert human input into a plant or animal to the point that at the genetic level it starts to modify itself to respond and almost create this codependent relationship with human involvement where the plant, mm-hmm. for example, can no longer just be let free because it won't propagate. You know, it needs humans to kind of do that. And we saw, we've mm-hmm. seen many of our, our plants do that, you know, the, the tomato, the chili. Yeah. And then I'm thinking about this qu- phrase or this question of like, well, okay, well, how, do we, how do we recognize what has been already there, which is that people are scientists and have been actively investigating, researching, preserving, and passing on information. But now we think about this, this space that like uh, all over, you know, in many locations, they're, they're having conversations that what they call like the professionals, the experts, the scientists. And maybe the mm-hmm. talk is how do we shift that that conversation and we start giving ourselves credit or giving others those credits. I think about, for example, the ways that um, if if there is a a type of corn that is being taken care of in certain uh, certain communities. And this research team goes abroad to study it, but then creates a hierarchy of credit. So once that research team writes that paper and publishes it, it's the research team that gets the credit as the authorship. When Mm -hmm. we know that it doesn't make any sense because the research team was dependent on the community, teaching them everything they knew. The only thing they've Mm -hmm. done is maybe translate it. Do you think it's possible to really support that shift so that when we think of our communities, they become the centers of research? They become the sources of authorship uh, without having to depend on that hierarchy of academia that many of us have learned to see?
1: I want to say it is possible. I just wonder what needs to who needs to be involved or what needs to happen? Do we need to know more about law in order for people to be able to be accounted for? And I, there needs to be more conversations about it in the scientific world um, in a way. I mean, a lot of people were traditional scientists the quote, scientists, unquote, not, maybe not in the Western way in a different way Um, and it's not really until recently that's been recognized and labeled as traditional ecological knowledge right which that's barely getting to the science world maybe it's a little more recent um, and it has taken a long time for that to be recognized but at the same time kind of from what you said earlier the scientific world isn't quite ready to accept that yet um, because it has such a, quote, Western model, unquote. Um, I was speaking with a professor from the University of New Mexico, uh, uh, Greg Cajete, and he was mentioned, I had brought up one scientist that I know, she's a native scientist. Her name is uh, Robin Kiminer. She wrote the book, Braiding Sweetgrass, and she does have a a biology lab, and I forgot which university, but she does incorporate indigenous knowledge, indigenous science in her studies and allows her students to do that. And he had mentioned, yeah, he knows her, he's spoken with her and how she, um, you know, there are challenges for, for funding her program because the science world doesn't quite support it. And so it's really unfortunate to hear, because to me, when I when I was reading her book, I was just so amazed that there are people out there who are trying to incorporate this and change the science world right now with incorporating Indigenous knowledge. But it's unfortunate that it's not ready there. So maybe <laughs> what needs to happen, um, need to have more new young scholars who are bringing up these conversations, enough to be able to convince the older ones, Um, I'm not quite sure.
0: Yeah, I wonder if there's a way that we can kind of talk about some of the most disruptive possibilities, because part of me is Mm -hmm. focusing on the work that I have accumulated and up to this point, and it's it starts off in like pre veterinary medicine, me just being a student, and I just like, ah, one day I'm Mm -hmm. gonna be a veterinarian. And I'm taking, and and my model is like, just give me all the classes I need to get to this place. Then I entered Chicano studies, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna shift gears. Then I went into teaching, uh, and then I went back to grad school, and I followed anthropology. And now I'm returning, you know, in the sense of like, okay, we have this research context. And it goes back to this context that I struggled with, which was the things that I researched, and eventually was granted credit uh, by being given a doctorate was something that I gathered from the community. So I produced my writing and my analysis, but the content was given by the students, faculty, teachers, the community that allowed me, that gave me permission to spend three years with them, and yet I'm the one who got the credit. And what I think about is that that mirrors a lot of the frustration that many of us feel when we think about communities and their source of information that researchers, even agribusiness, uh, goes toward to get, and then they benefit from it, you know. But I think it also helps to consider the disruptive possibilities. So one of the things that I know is that, well, what is it that, what patterns are we catching? And we're, a, a, we're, we're catching a pattern that is consistently about the university being a an institution, a physical unit where knowledge is held, where knowledge is sequestered, caged, and then later disseminated under appropriate channels. Uh, every day I, I, I have this running joke with people because I read these articles that only validate what we already know so for example there might be a research saying hey you know according to this this university sleeping is good for your health and then i was like yeah my mom said that forever you know my mom would say go to sleep you know like yeah. <laughs> things like that you know and then recently there was this one about like going into sweat ceremonies and, and then the effect it has on the body and the inflammation. And and I was like, yeah, many of our communities were sweating and we were, and that was told actually, like, you know, when, when my knee was hurting, like, okay, go into the sweat. Um, it'll mm-hmm. help. And I was like, again, consistently, so-and-so university publishes a research that validates what I already heard from my community. it's So maybe the shift is this, like, can we stop depending on these sequestered institutions where knowledge is it's caged. It goes out by these people with lab coats to gather, ha- hide it for a minute, and then give it away so they get credit. And I know that's an answer that it's a yes, so now it's the how, right? It's obviously that we can do that. Maybe that's the line that a lot of us are working toward. Really. Like, How do we be- become those people that are able to support that change. And one of the things I've been catching is that there are many people in our communities that are teaching and and are holding these courses where they're giving information but are not, are not institutionally supported. They don't have a PhD. Mm-hmm. They don't have a certificate mm-hmm. from so-and-so institution from the state. They are just people that do know the information, are hosting workshops are giving it so maybe that's the shift of how we start becoming those people that support the momentum of turning things upside down
1: right I think that's a good point and as you were saying that I was thinking like it starts with us right we need to I've been thinking to myself and I need to give less power to these scientific journals like why am I taking their word for it <laughs> when at the same time only that person is replicated. Nobody else has even in first place. But, um, if we, like you said, we know there's a lot of traditional knowledge that we've been told for a long time. And why is it that it's not until medical research says it works, that we really begin to accept it. We need to begin to accept it ourselves and share it. Like you said, give workshops and share that knowledge and spread it and maybe create more solid, um, like paper, books, um, zines about it to share that knowledge, um, so that it's it's not just verbal. It's also physical, um, or maybe even through pictures. It it does start with us, and I think you're right. Like going into spaces and teaching and um, and spreading that knowledge, and at that when that happens. You will then inspire other people who may either be connected through an institution or through a county, whatever, et cetera. And slowly but surely, that maybe, maybe they will bring up those conversations. Um, and maybe it has to happen that way. At the same time, I'm also thinking how um, it is essential to have people in different spaces, whether you believe in a system or not. Maybe you do need to have somebody in a system, like the institution, who would speak up for you or you do it yourself or somebody else, you know, who you work closely with may need to happen as well so that we begin to change.
0: I I do agree with what you said because I think about these spaces of empowerment where people create their own schools, uh, Mm -hmm. where people really say like, hey, I'm not going to pursue this one line of, of credit Or resources because we already have our resources and it may not look like you want them to look but we will do this on our own and it's been done in the past and it's being done right now but at the same time I feel that at least my own struggle is this sense toward abandonment like I'm walking away from these institutions that were not designed for us by us or even to give us any really Um, opportunity for real empowerment and I'm like in my conversation I'm like well I'm just gonna walk away I'm gonna distance myself and give my time to other spaces but there's also this thing that is possible which is I think you're referencing here you you don't have to cut out everything you don't have to make that harsh choice of giving your back what if there are some skill sets that are going to be able to support us you know so the the knowledge system that we understand for example you and your research that's that is still there and and maybe the question is like well are you being forced to let it go and say like oh because it came from the university system you shouldn't use it and a lot of us would be saying like no no I think we can learn a lot from what you've learned and your work Mm -hmm. bring it here and see if see if we can have a dialogue and maybe that's the space where we start saying can we have a dialogue so that our things are offered and accepted with consent and 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 maybe maybe that's the line where we start seeing a lot more people because i've been really uh excited about the way that i think of people giving themselves credit we've always had in all our homes we've had people that were knowledgeable and we didn't, we never really gave them the credit of the term that we now can use. So, for example, we might have someone that may be thought of as a doctor, someone that would be thought of as a historian, someone that would be thought of as a, an artist. You know, these are the titles that through the institutions we've learned to give these professionals. But surprisingly, <laughs> in our very homes, we were our first educators gave us all these things you know I can think of of the multiple people that I call like my historians they knew everything about our family history and more you know so that but I never really it wasn't until I was much older when I met like someone in the university system who was called a historian I was like oh that's what my dad does he literally does the exact same thing here like dates and patterns and and archiving of material I was like, yeah, that's interesting that I never thought of giving that person that credit of a title. But I I wonder if that's where our energy now goes, that maybe we have to come up with our own titles so that we don't have to feel that we are being appropriated by what the institution already has labeled. I don't know. I'm just thinking about the ways of like encouraging one another to give ourselves credit.
1: Right. I agree with you. And I, I like what you said because I've said this for a couple years that my first botanist and plant plant biology teachers were my parents because they've taught me everything that you can see. I can see how they grow in the garden. Um, and there are oftentimes I feel more knowledgeable than some of my colleagues who don't know how to grow things and yet they're studying to quote feed people unquote um you're right there there are plenty of people who have this knowledge and we've just refrained from giving them titles and or maybe they're at the same time i've heard you know sometimes people are humble and and don't want to be given that title but they are knowledge holders and we do need to recognize that and a lot of people do um i guess it's just not really done in enough spaces um I see. I feel that a lot of people of color do recognize that in particular spaces, but outside of people of color spaces, I don't really know.
0: <laughs> what directions interest you right now?
1: I'm pretty open. I am more interested in being more involved in actually growing food to really prove how diversity in farms, in agriculture systems can be sustainable, can be beneficial. And so I want to grow food myself, grow food and medicinals myself, but that is something I've envisioned, but I haven't really quite taken steps. I need to learn a lot more about business to really understand how could that function. But I definitely, and have always, since my undergraduate and before school, have been interested in helping the small farmers, the farmers who don't um, often don't get the resources to help them out with their problems or issues on their farm, and so I'm open to any type of opportunities like that, which I'm hoping do happen. Um, I'm interested in teaching um, youth, teaching adults who are interested in growing food or any of the type of knowledge that I could share, which is seed keeping, um, natural methods to control in their garden, learn about native bees, native bees, and how to uh, care for them, bring back their populations, and at the same time plant native plants and provide that that resource back into our our homes and non-homes, our culture areas. So I'm pretty open. I definitely don't want to do research anymore. (laughs) Um, I'm pretty tired of it now that it's it's been so long and it's, to me, it's, it's very difficult and having to stay in that structure and go through the, the regular Western way of science. I, I don't find it to be rewarding enough for me anymore. And I don't really feel that it, it often, at least for me, um, don't feel it makes enough change into growing food in a beneficial way for the earth
0: i think it's exciting just to think about the ways that all of us are in that place of um, inquiry and like accessing new ways of thinking but ultimately uh, guided by this approach to really think of ourselves as people that can affect the world in a better place you know as i hear you uh, the, the conversation about growing food, helping people, educating, it's it's all good stuff. And I think it's just amazing. I, I find uh, this conversation consistent to where many of us are. You know, we're just trying to find a spot to grow, to be stronger, and to just give, you know. And on a note, yeah. I want to thank you very much for sharing this conversation with us today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: You've just finished hearing a conversation with Natalie Solaris holding a master's degree in plant pathology. We spoke about her experience as a researcher and her insights into the ways that present academic programs and to some degree entire disciplines express a divide between community-based knowledge systems and a perception of credited researchers' experts. I was particularly motivated by the Directions that many people are already expressing But we look to our home in order to acknowledge the sources of knowledge that are already there and extend the credit beyond understanding that we ourselves express a legacy a history of researchers scientists historians artists intellectuals By bringing that forward as we move through the respective education systems It's exciting to see the growth of our communities as we get stronger. I hope you found this conversation interesting and relevant and take it to your respective circles to continue. Please feel free to send me your thoughts, questions or any comments you may have to the following email, comments at dereport.org. You can also check out our archive page at dereport.org to check out past segments. You've been listening to Danielle with the Dear Report here on KUCR, the radio station of UC Riverside. Stay safe, stay strong, join us again next week.